This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. It's been a long time coming, 11 years in fact. The Connecticut Coalition of Justice and Education Funding, or CCJEF, filed the lawsuit against then-Governor Jody Rell's administration in 2005. The Alliance of Parents, Municipalities, Boards of Ed, and Teachers Unions did so because it, it believed the state's funding formula is unconstitutional. So what does last week's court decision meet now? WNPR's education reporter David DeRoche joins us this hour to explain the recent ruling. We'll talk with the parent and with legislators about what needs to happen next. And later we'll find out what options local school districts have beyond an over-reliance on property taxes to fund schools. We want to hear from you. How do you think Connecticut can make its public education system more equitable? Are you worried about how the decision will impact your school and your property taxes? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining me now in studio is David DeRoche, WMPR's education reporter. Hi, David. Good morning, Lucy. Um, Before we go to a parent, I just wanted you to recap how we got here to the judge's ruling. That was uh, Superior Court Judge Thomas uh, Mukauscher, who ruled that the state needs a new funding formula for our public school system. Right. So in 2005, uh, the Connecticut Coalition for Justice and Education Funding filed the suit. And they're kind of an interesting conglomeration of constituents. They have uh, parents, uh, students, teachers, uh, some municipal leaders from uh, wealthy towns and from uh, some urban areas. And they gathered to say basically that the state is not equitably funding education across the state. And so here we are 11 years later where the judge has, um, has, has found in favor of the plaintiffs in, in most points. Um, but one of the key things that he did not find was he did not indicate a funding amount. He said that level needs to be set by the legislatures. But what he did say was that the Connecticut's uh, teacher evaluation system needs to be looked at. Um, the special education funding system needs to be evaluated and um, basically in, in, in issued an indictment against how the state issues uh, fund schools. He, he didn't say that the state underfunded schools. He said that they paid enough money that they adequately funded education. But what he said was there, there, there's no rational reason why educa- um, they spend the money the way they do. For example, they, uh, Connecticut has what's called the Education Cost Sharing Grant. And that basically um, is state aid to districts. And it's, it's a weighted formula that basically districts that have more need get more money from the state. However, the, the state has not used that formula since about 2009. It, what it's been doing basically is flat funding education across the board and giving some extra money to what's called alliance districts. These are these districts that um, have a lot, have very high need students, um, Bridgeport, Hartford, um, New Haven, Waterbury, places like that. They get a lot of extra money from the state, but they have not stuck to a formula. So basically what the judge was saying was that just because you're giving more money to these poorer areas does not mean that it's it's a rational system. And basically he said that you need a rational system that's verifiable he said you need a rational, equitable, and verifiable system, and that's not what's at, um, what, what Connecticut is doing at the moment. So we look. So if we look at local communities, I know the New York Times had a great piece over the weekend. Um, you can have the city of Bridgeport, which, ha- which has lots of issues, um, high poverty rate, also uh, more special education students, and you see uh, – the outcomes such as uh, you know poor graduation rates compared to say neighboring Fairfield, the town of Fairfield. You know why? How has this been able to exist for so long? Right, that's really a fascinating question, and and it's it's really what the judge discussed was a tale of basically two Connecticut's, and it's something that's mm-hmm. been around for a very long time. What you mentioned, you know, these wealthy districts are doing very well. Um, the problem is it's really complicated. Um, part of it has to do with teacher retention. Um, some of the poorer districts have very poor teacher retention rates. They have a much higher number of teachers who are, who are inexperienced. 
and the teachers there uh, tend to go to districts that have low minorities and, and are, are, are wealthier. They tend to not um, stay in those districts. So it's, it's really kind of a complicated problem that has a lot to do with teacher mobility. Um, and it's, it's a lot more to do with economics and housing also than, than simply just school. So it really is complicated. And what the judge has basically asked the state of Connecticut to do is, is, is to take 180 days to fix this problem that they've been trying to fix for a very long time. So um, it's really unclear whether or not the state will appeal, um, but the, the, the order is steep, and we'll see if Connecticut tries to meet that order. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is WNPR's David DeRoche. We're talking about the court ruling uh, just last week, a Superior Court judge saying that Connecticut lawmakers specifically need to come up with a funding formula that works to get rid of this uh, inequitable system. On the phone with us now is uh, Rachel Shaleski. She's a mother to two children in the city of Danbury public school system, and Danbury was one of the plaintiffs in this 11-year lawsuit. Rachel, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. So tell us about your children in the public schools in Danbury. Are you satisfied with the quality education? Are they getting a quality education there? They are getting a quality education here. Um, it's uh, just not as as great as it could be. When you say that, what what are some places where that could be improved? Um, some places where it can be improved, I think... Um, the schools are greatly overcrowded. And how are the schools um, funded? Primarily through the, the property tax? So do you see uh, an issue with disparity there? Uh, yes, there's um, a great disparity across the state. Um, right now, at the formula as it stands does not account for the number of students in and out of a district. It does not account for the, the basic needs of a student, um, nor, I mean, nor the per-pupil spending. Now, a lot of times people will move out of communities to get to a better school system. The city of Danbury is surrounded by wealthier suburbs. Is that an option for you? Is that something you'd want to do? Yeah, that is a popular idea in the area. Um, as we, we're seeing the surrounding towns... Um, are closing schools, and here in Danbury, um, they're just the rate at which the student population is growing is just um, incredible that the city can't keep up. Um, it's it's not really an option for me. Um, it's not realistic for many of the families here. I've lived here for 16 years. I love this town. Um, And so when this ruling came out, Rachel, can I ask, you know, are you confident that the state can come up with a more uh, equitable system to fund schools? I, I really hope so. I'm hopeful. Um, it's just, it's, it's, are you there, Rachel? Well, we'll turn back to David DeRoche. I think that there's an issue with her phone line. Uh, but can we talk a little bit more about, um, you know, do we see a lot of families that, you know, may be in uh, cities where, um, like it's like Danbury, where they feel like the education system could be better, but they don't have the option sure. to, to move. So then what then? Absolutely. Um, what then is, is a great question. I think every family um, struggles with that. Um, you see a lot of um, places across Connecticut, a lot of areas are actually losing enrollment, and that's a whole other kind of, uh, problem that the state is facing. 
Um, you know, and one of the things the judge pointed was that they spend about the state spends about a billion dollars a year on construction projects, and it spends uh, two billion dollars a year on state aid. So of the $3 billion that it spends on schools, a third of that is going to construction projects. And he was having some trouble understanding you know, why that is, when, especially when you have enrollment declines. And the only places where enrollment is going up is some of the urban areas, which is interesting. So these are the places that have generally the, the less attractive school systems, but they are the places that are ex- actually experiencing enrollment. So one of the things I think the judge did not mention, because he didn't really talk about specific remedies, he, he, he said that the state needs to kind of figure this out. But one of the things that has been floating around for a very long time is this concept of regionalization. And that's something that has been coming up a lot lately. Um, Connecticut is as a small state and there's 169 towns and even more school districts. And compared to a state like Virginia, which has about 132 school districts, it's about three times Connecticut's size. So the bureaucracy in Connecticut is, is, is could be part of the problem. And, and a lot of people say regionalization could be the answer to help fix a lot of these problems that the judge has pointed to. Do you have a parent in public school? What's your take? Are you confident, again, that the the state of Connecticut, the General Assembly, can look at how uh, the schools are funded and come up with a more equitable system? You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. When we come back from the break, we'll talk with a lawmaker about how the General Assembly should tackle changing the state's funding formula to public schools. And if the state appeals, does that mean the legislature delays doing the work this up? Upcoming session. We'll find out. You can join the conversation again, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've heard about the achievement gap between poor and wealthy kids, between children of color and white children. How does Connecticut close the gap? Part of the solution is to provide an equitable education, and now a Superior Court judge has ruled Connecticut's General Assembly must fix the formula it uses to fund public schools. And the judge gave them six months to come up with a plan. A lawmaker is joining us now in studio, State Representative Jeff Curry, a Democrat who represents East Hartford, Manchester, and South Windsor. Welcome to where we live. Thank you very much for having me. So, again, you represent East Hartford. I believe that was one of the plaintiffs in this lawsuit. Yes, that is correct. So your reaction to uh, the ruling by Judge uh, Mukasher? Honestly, I think this is one of the greatest opportunities that Connecticut has to potentially uh, get out of their own way and to make substantial changes and make this all about our kids and get away from that whole territorial Uh, 169 little towns that we have here in Connecticut and be able to do this uh, for everyone's children and provide that high-quality learning experience for all of our kids. Tell us about the the public school system in East Hartford. Uh, It is one of a kind. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, I was born and raised in East Hartford, and uh, it, it gave me an experience that was truly reflective of the real world. And one, an experience that I would never change, so much so that um, my own siblings have decided to raise their own families in East Hartford and to have their kids go through the public school systems in East Hartford. So uh, very much different than the city of Hartford, where we hear a lot about um, the graduation rate being poor, um, disparities, uh, a level of poverty. I mean, why did East Hartford join into this lawsuit? Uh, because I think that they saw that there was that uh, lack of uh, equality and equity with regards to education funding. Uh, There's been a number of different lawsuits over the years that have tried to address this, Uh, the most recent one being specific to the Hartford region with uh, Chef V. O'Neill, 
uh, which unfortunately the unintended consequences of that was that it created kind of a, a chef light, uh, if you if you want to say, uh, in East Hartford. And uh, that seriously drained resources directly that would go to our students in East Hartford to be able to fund uh, those magnet school tuitions uh, that raised from about 700000 to well over $3 million in a course of only a few years while our t- um, enrollment rates in East Hartford stayed exactly the same, but those students going to those magnet schools increased. So uh, East Hartford just recognized the inequity and, and recognized that it was time to step up. I want to take a call now. Gary from Colchester, who is mentioning Chef O'Neill in the comments here. Gary, you're on Where We Live. Oh, I guess Gary is not there. But uh, let's talk a little bit more about Chef O'Neill, our education reporter, David DeRoche. You know, how did that um, decision set Connecticut up to where it is now? Well, that was uh, certainly behind the, the recent decision, also uh, a court decision that has altered um, education, at least in the Hartford region. Um, what, it, what it was trying to do was desegregate the school system. So the Hartford district was very high minority populations, and then the outer districts were um, low minority populations. So they were trying to integrate. They're trying to attract students from the suburbs to come to Hartford and trying to attract students in Hartford to go to the suburbs. And it's worked somewhat, but it has created some inequities, like you mentioned. Um, it's created some problems uh, because a lot of parents um, simply want their kids to go to the neighborhood schools. It's a lot much easier. It's much, uh, if, they, if they lack transportation, it's much simpler for them to just simply send their kid to the neighborhood school. Um, and it's created an, 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 a whole number of issues. But um, uh, one of the things that th- this case, um, the the recent decision could, could have an impact on that is because that's what it's really focused on, is focused on this idea of equity. So where do we spend dollars and how do we spend dollars in a way that makes sense? Um, the chef case um, was more along the lines of how do we um, attract, how do we integrate schools? Um, and then prior to that case, there was the Meskel Horton uh, case, which was in the 70s, which created the the ECS grant, which Connecticut no longer follows. So, you know, what's interesting, what I'd like to ask um, uh, Representative Curry is um, is how the the legislature often um, almost defaults to the judiciary to, in these kind of cases. It seems like. Um, maybe there's not the political will to really you know, pursue the ECS grant the way it was meant to be uh, pursued because of you know budget crises and these kinds of things. It almost seems like um, sometimes the, relying on the judiciary to make these kind of complicated decisions. Do you find that that, um, that that makes it easier for guys to do your work or does it complicate things a little bit? I think it holds our feet to the fire. And, um, you know, when a system is the way that it is for so long, I think just people find, have a hard time, like I said earlier, getting out of their own way. And, uh, you know, with this being one of the greatest opportunities, albeit it took a court order, you know, if that's what it takes, then great. I mean, now now's the time to just get to work and get it done. Right. If the state appeals, the legislature doesn't have to do anything this session, do they? Um, you know, regardless of whether they appeal, I think the writing's on the wall. And I would hope that all interested stakeholders are going to take this as serious, whether or not an appeal is filed, and really start having these conversations, difficult conversations, to get this work done. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take a call now. Lynn is calling from Winstead. Lynn, you're on Where We Live. Hi, yes. Um, Very nice to meet you. And Lynn, what's your question or comment? Um, Actually, I have a couple. Um, um, I just recently tuned in, and I only caught a portion of uh, the conversation that you just had on your ESS grant. Um, And I find that very interesting uh, because I've definitely run into the fact, for example, for here in Winstead, 
often what happens in these smaller towns where, you know, a smaller country town, and often what I've seen is um, our funds will actually go into the town coffer, and then the town being our banking source, um, will choose whether or not we will get a full portion of, say, the ESS grant or some type of grant. Um, and obviously that impedes our education and our educational funding because now the town starts to have an argument over this is our money, it was sent into our bank, and then the, the actual um, the actual board of ed will obviously be fighting for the same funds because they're saying, you know, this is our money because obviously it was meant to go towards education. Um, I've seen this also um, during grants. Um, sometimes a town will say if you're a big, larger nonprofit, um, money will be put into, well, I'm just going like, to come up with a hypothetical. Maybe the money will go into Waterbury because we're this big nonprofit. The money goes there, and again, what happens is maybe they get a grant for, we'll just say $10,000. Then Waterbury will say, well, you're using our bank, you're using our banking sources, we're going to skim some money off the top of that grant, and we aren't going to give Winchester the full amount. Um, we're, we're only going to give you maybe 25% of that because we had to, to deal with the banks and, you know, that type of thing. And I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. I think that if you're given a certain grant or a certain amount from the state, that that money should absolutely go towards 100% towards those kids in that program. Um, the other question um, that I had was more towards transitional services. Um, here in Winstead, um, we recently became under receivership. Um, many years ago, I'm going to say about five years ago, um, we were investigated. We had an evaluation with the state. They said that um, we um, were uh, we did not have a transition program for the special ed students, which was a fact at the time. And so now we have the state here, and, you know, five years later, we still have no transitional program. The hope was when we became under receivership that we would receive more state funding, obviously, um, to put the pieces of our educational programs back together again and give the students what they obviously need. Um, and yet, here we sit, and many of the students have now graduated um, or are obviously in the process of graduating, and this piece is still not in place. All right, Lynn. Well, let me get um, our, our education reporter, David DeRoche, to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, towns and more rural communities. How sure. do they get the right funding, especially in Winstead or Winchester, who were, have been under receivership? Um, so can we talk about how the state, um, how they are involved in communities like uh, Winstead? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure how the state handles that. I think um, they probably have different plans for different communities based on their needs. But I think one of the points Lynn made about uh, transition services is, is interesting because a lot of a lot of districts are um, failing on that aspect, um, not having adequate plans for kids who transition out of special education or graduate from school and then go on um, to college. They, um, and that's one of, the, one of the aspects that the judge discussed in his decision was special education funding. He basically said the state has an irrational f uh, special education funding system. Um, however, some of the points that he made um, have raised quite a stir in the special education community, um, where a lot of people consider some of his comments to be a little bit insensitive and possibly in violation of federal law because 
the judge basically essentially said that um, students with severe disabilities uh, should be evaluated um, for whether or not they can attain any kind of education, meaningful education at all. And, and federal law said, essentially states that every child is, is entitled to an appropriate education. So it's created a little bit of a stir with that. Um, but the special education funding system in Connecticut is um, interesting, and there are a lot of problems with it. For example, um, in Darien, at least several years ago, the district applied for and, and received $200,000 in additional state funding that it should not have received. That money was um, – was they applied for it based on special education services that they had not provided students. So basically they had told the state that they provided these services, but they had not provided those services, and that was uncovered in an audit. So there's a lot of problems with special education funding and special education generally, and the judge um, at least mentioned that as a general theme that needs to be explored. We're going to talk a little, little bit later about um, how school districts can um, better um, pay for uh, their students' special ed uh, population. But I wanted to go back to Representative Curry, who's in studio. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the other points that the judge uh, made? I mean, it's not just about money, right? There should be some other standards in place uh, to make sure that there's better outcomes in our schools um, and how teachers are evaluated. Yeah, I think the teacher evaluation piece has been definitely um, discussed at length over the last uh, couple of years, especially over this last session. Uh, there was uh, legislation introduced, uh, Senate Bill 380, uh, that went through um, uh, through the Education Committee, um, specifically with regards to SBAC testing and how those directly correlate with the teacher's evaluation process. So, you know, do I think that the evaluation system is flawed? Yes. Do I think it needs to be reworked? Absolutely. And I think that's what the group peak is is kind of undertaking at the moment. Um, do I think the SBAC test is appropriate? Uh, probably not in the way that it's being used. I mean, we have a number of, of other kinds of uh, progressive monitoring tests that could be used um, to work into teacher evaluation. Do I think the judge is uh, right in calling this out and calling out special education as well as we mentioned already? Uh, absolutely. Um, again, it's it, sometimes we have a very hard time having those conversations at the legislative at the legislative level. Um, a lot of times because we come in um, as public servants and we always don't have the insight, the education, the wherewithal with these specific topics. So we rely on the subject matter experts to help lead us in a direction that's going to provide us those best outcomes for our students. Uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking about a recent court ruling that uh, it's about time the General Assembly comes up with a better funding formula to to make our public education here in Connecticut more equitable. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Representative uh, Jeff Curry is in studio with me. He represents East Hartford, Manchester, and South Windsor. Another point I wanted to throw to you, Representative Curry, uh, we had a caller from Wolkett say, Wolkett doesn't get a lot of funding. That's on the western side of the state. But the students do well. Why is it always about the money? <laughs> Million dollar question. <laughs> no, no pun intended, right? <laughs> you know, it, it's because the money is what makes the movement happen. And, you know, I know uh, Representative Hampton from Simsbury uh, was originally going to join me here today and unfortunately wasn't able to make it. And I, I know in the, in the paper he was worried that, you know, communities such as Simsbury and, as you mentioned, Wilkett are going to be penalized for this, for their successes. 
Well, I think as a state, we should be celebrating their successes because, again, as I said earlier, we need to get away from being so territorial and we need to move to making what this is about is it's about all of our kids. The entire state of Connecticut needs to succeed in order for everyone to succeed. And I think this goes far beyond just the money piece. Um, you know, you can throw money at the brick and mortar and the, the classrooms and what's going on inside, but it's the external circumstances of these students that's creating the problem. Um, you know, poverty is huge on this. And if we don't address the root problem, we're never going to fix everything. And the root, it starts at home. Uh, you know, the state is leading right now with its two-generational workforce and school readiness success initiative. And that's just and that's something that I think we need to take a closer look at and move towards as we talk about different ways into fun, different ways of funding education here in the state. And that's one of the things the judge pointed to specifically was it's not the amount. So, right, Connecticut spends the fourth highest amount per pupil in the country on right. education. So it wasn't the amount. The judge said, you know, we are obviously spending above the minimally adequate amount of money. It's just how it's being spent, right? So it is it is about the money, but then it's also not, right? So how you know it's also about resources other than money, like um, how do you um, recruit teachers? How do you ensure diversity of teaching workforce? And those are things Connecticut is looking at. Can we talk more about the poverty point, Representative Curry? Um, you know, we were looking at uh, models around the country, and I know uh, Massachusetts has really seen some gains, uh, particularly uh, the NPR ed team reported on uh, how schools are funded just a few months ago. And they pointed out uh, Revere, Massachusetts, which back in the 90s, again, Connecticut's not the only state that has had a, a lawsuit to try to compel them to do the right thing, and that is to treat all children fairly. But in Revere, Massachusetts, they found ways to improve teacher training and giving them more support because, again, Revere, Massachusetts had um, low-income students, and they were able to improve the graduation rate. Why are we, are we looking at states like Massachusetts of how you know, they're improving um, the outcomes for their students? I think it would behoove us to look at all states that, are, are being, that, that have provided successful models for funding uh, education for those outcomes that you talk about. You know, and I don't want to have it misconstrued uh, from what I'm saying, we have some of the greatest teachers here in the state of Connecticut who work day in and day out to, to provide that high-quality learning experience for every child every day. Uh, so, you know, I, I think first and foremost, we need to applaud them. But again, they only get these kids for a block of time during a day. What happens when they leave their classroom, you know, is what is the determining factor for when they return the next morning and what they're going to do and how well they're going to learn in those classrooms. And the graduation rate is kind of interesting, right? So the judge also pointed to how um, these places um, like Bridgeport and New Haven, the places that really do struggle to graduate kids, have a lower graduation rate, but they have uh, increased and improved significantly. But he, he questions the, val the validity of these graduations. Like, are these kids ready? And he used kind of a vague readiness index. He didn't really cite how he was determining whether or not they were ready or not. But it's, 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 it's fairly um, widespread um, opinion that a lot of these kids simply are not ready for college. They have to take a lot of remedial courses once they go to college. So there is an, a question of how valuable a graduation is. And this idea of community involvement is also interesting, too. Um, Johanna Hayes, the Connecticut's uh, Teacher of the Year, the, the National Teacher of the Year, has, that's one of her big sticking points, right, is how do we engage the broader community? And that, that's a question that, that should be coming up as, as the state tries to tackle this complex issue. And I think that we've seen a lot of communities actually go uh, a step and higher uh, like a director of community engagement within the districts to kind of help um, bridge that gap between the students and the community. Because again, not all taxpayers in a community, you know, have students in the classrooms. And I think that goes back to, to the point again, that it's about 
all of our kids, not just the ones in your particular family. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take a call now. Ken is calling from Hartford. Ken, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me on this morning, Lucy. I, I listened to the conversation, and I, I, I read a lot of the reports about uh, Judge Mukauscher's decision. And, and I think the one word that I didn't see anywhere and I haven't heard is structural racism. We have de facto and de jure segregation in the state of Connecticut. And it's frustrating to hear all these euphemisms. High-performing school district is a euphemism for really rich white town. Low-performing school district is a euphemism for poor town where black and brown kids can't get out because we have structures like property values and things like that that attack it. I'm an attorney. I go to bar meetings and uh, talk to other counselors. And I bring this up because I tell some people I live in Hartford and they look at me like I have two heads, like I would never go there. And I find myself astonished at the weak conversation that we are having in this state about one of the structural and fundamental issues that creates this inequality. Chef versus O'Neill. 20 years ago was an attempt to address this. And then we, we can even go back to Brown versus Board of Education as being the original sin in these desegregation or education funding suits. And I just get, I get frustrated because we're not talking about why we have had these segregated school districts. And, and beyond that, there's an implicit bias that goes on in these conversations. Judge Mukauscher, to be a judge, had to take implicit bias training. I wish that every high school in the state of Connecticut that's a public school had implicit bias training for its students so they could understand why and how they come to these determinations about where they're going to live, how they're going to live, and how they're going to say, this is my community, these are my kids, and those people who live in that town, they're their kids. So I, I just I get really frustrated when we don't hit the nail straight on, and we use things other than a hammer to hit the nail when we're talking about education. We need to be talking about race. Well, thank you, Ken, for your comment. I'll have Representative Curry respond. Uh, yeah, I think you you know you make a, a fantastic point. You know, Connecticut, we pride ourselves on being quite a progressive state in so many ways. But I think once you get to the topic of educating our brown and our black children, those more affluent communities turn their backs. And I think that everybody needs to come to the table and find solutions that's going to be able to educate all of our students, regardless of race, regardless of economic status, and provide a fair opportunity for each of those students. Um, but again, I think the, the point of race uh, into this is 100% accurate. We're getting a lot of calls, so I ask for your patience. I'm going to take a call now. Sam from Avon. Sam, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Uh, one thing I'd like to say is, I, I think more than addressing money, what has to be addressed is the time and commitment spent by parents and custodial uh, guardians of these children. One thing that really needs to be pointed out is a teacher cannot truly teach everything to a child. The teacher's job is to expose the child to the topic, and then the real learning takes place in the time that's spent doing homework and to review the material. It's impossible for any teacher to teach everything. I mean, the teacher's job is to expose them to it and give them the learning tools, which is the homework, to truly learn something. And no matter how much money you throw at something, it's not going to make up for kids that go home and there's no parental involvement in following through because that's where the true learning takes place. 
kids learn more truly as far as digesting the information at the kitchen table doing their homework at night than they do in the little bit of a time that a teacher has to, to expose them to it. I'm just wondering what you can, can throw in as far as resolving that. What I'm almost thinking is if there were homework centers for kids that are not doing their homework where they can go and they can spend that extra time to digest and to process the material because if a teacher has a child for 45 minutes in a classroom, they're just exposing them to it. There's no way they have the time to fully digest it. Do you have any comments on that, please? Thank you, Sam, for your call. Our, our education reporter, David DeRoche. So, yeah, thanks, Sam, for the, for the point. You know, a lot of schools around Connecticut are starting to offer what's called uh, additional support services. Um, they're really becoming community centers uh, because of the issues that you cite. Um, they're starting to offer health care. Um, there were uh, a lot of schools offered meals during the summer for kids who can't have, don't have um, meals twice, two or three times a day at home. Um, uh, psychological services. A lot of schools are starting to kind of step up their game and try to meet the demand, um, uh, meet the need that occurs when uh, the uh, the support's not present at home. But this is a really complicated issue, and it doesn't just affect Connecticut. I mean, this is something that certainly just about every state is facing, right? And to what extent do schools become this panacea? When do, you know, to when do we start start relying on? Or to, to what point do we not stop relying on schools to solve all societal ills, right? And then I think what Representative Curry was pointing to is this is a community-wide issue. Um, and, and when you look at the and, and the previous caller mentioned uh, racism, structural racism in, in Connecticut, and that's also a, a very steep cultural hill that we need to climb as a country. Um, but it and that's created by things like redlining in real estate um, and gerrymandering in districts. I mean, these things that have happened for years have created this this structural system that is really hard to dismantle. And it's been in and, and addressing it through schools is one solution, but schools can't be the only solution. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about a, a fairly complicated issue, but one that hits home for everyone, and that's how do we make public education equitable statewide. I want to take up more calls before we go to break. Heather is calling from Brantford. Heather, you're on Where We Live. Hi, yes. Thank you for having me. Um, I just wanted to make a comment. Um, I completely agree with um, what Kenneth said earlier and also um, a little bit what Sam said. I actually work in Middletown, Connecticut. Um, I work at an inpatient psychiatric hospital for adolescents, and I see directly um, a bit of the race race issue. Like I have a lot of kids who are on the lower uh, socioeconomic status, um, aren't getting the help, like Sam said, maybe at home. Um, but these children are being matriculated in these schools, um, they're now at a high school level, but they really haven't gotten the special education that they've needed and aren't at the level that they should be at in terms of, of being at the high school level right now. And my concern is, is that more the teacher, the teachers matriculating or is it a problem with the district? All right, um, Heather, thank you for uh, your call. I know, David, you've reported a lot on, on special education. I mean, what's your take? Well, that, I mean, that's a really complicated issue that um, probably is um, has a lot to do with a variety of factors. I mean, certainly um, attracting and retaining quality teachers is a big part of it. I, don't, I think also it has to do with culture. Um, uh, school cultures are different from district to district, and that depends on the broader culture um, in the community. 
Um, if a school, if a school-wide culture uh, perceives children with disabilities as a liability, then that's how they're going to be treated, and that's how they're going to be. Um, their education plans are going to reflect that. Um, if you're, they're in a community where they're respected and they, they're given hope, then they're going to. It's going to reflect that too. Of course, um, not all the time. It, it, special education is often associated with high costs, um, but there are a lot of measures that schools can do to keep their costs down and also provide great services. Uh, just a real quick question. What is the State Department of Education's role in this? That's a great question. Um, I think the legislature is going to have to definitely work with the State Department of Education because the State Department, as Representative Curry mentioned, they're kind of the experts in this. They know what's feasible, what's practical. So they're certainly going to have to be uh, working hand in hand with the legislature as they try to work toward a solution. Yeah. This is, oh, go ahead. Oh, and, and not to yeah. So, and I think uh, the good point is is that the State Department of Ed, along with the governor, have done tremendous things over the last couple of years. Uh, where, you know, there may be some resistance to increase ECS funding. Um, specifically, they've kind of stepped in with additional programs, whether that be the Commissioner's Network or the Alliance Funding, to provide that additional money that may have been otherwise worked into the ECS formula to get to those lower-performing districts to help bolster their numbers and all of their uh, rates that are associated. I want to take a call now. Uh, Andy Feinstein is calling uh, Where We Live. Andy, you're on Where We Live. Uh, thank you very much. So you're a special education attorney. Uh, what's your take on this uh, ruling from Judge Mukasher? Well, in general, the ruling is uh, is long overdue and uh, very important, and it's time for uh, um, all of us to get to work on coming up with a solution to a really, really failed education system in Connecticut. When we got to the area of special education, however, uh, the judge um, went off in some very strange ways, arguing Severely disabled children probably aren't entitled to much education at all. That's a fairly dangerous concept. Um, if we're basing um, quality of education on level of disability, um, we are ending up discriminating against the most disabled. And of course, that whole notion that because somebody um, cannot be educated, uh, uh, they should not get services leads to some very troubling consequences. Why, for example, should we be spending public resources on the elderly when they're not going to contribute to society under that sort of um, view? So that prospect is, uh, that language in the decision is is really quite troubling, and I assume that uh, both the legislature and, of course, the courts will will just strike it down. The other thing uh, that the judge said in the area of special education was that there are widely varying standards, um, district by district, and that's, of course, one of the big problems we have in Connecticut, um, that uh, any efforts at centralization, at regionalization of schools have been beaten back by local opposition. Uh, A couple of years ago, the Moore Commission was established by the legislature for the very purpose of creating some regional efficiencies in all areas of government, and uh, as we can see from their final report, uh, basically any efforts towards uh, regionalization um, that are significant were branded. Um, Connecticut's a highly, uh, highly uh, atomized state, and um, it's time to get back towards some form of centralization.
civilization. Andy, we're going to need to take a break soon, but I'm going to ask you just to hold the line because we're going to talk a little bit more about um, how funding should change in that uh, last segment uh, with Katie Roy of the Connecticut School Finance Project. So I'll ask you to just hold the line. I want to thank Representative Jeff Curry of East Hartford. If you could stick around with us before we go to break and WMPR's education reporter, David DeRoche. Again, we're here to talk about how Connecticut can fund public schools more equitably. When we come back, a look at possible solutions from a nonprofit exclusively look, looking at how schools are financed. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the recent court decision that found the state of Connecticut needs to change how it funds public education. The judge called the current system irrational. I want to take a quick call. Uh, Matt has been on hold from Farmington. Matt, you're on Where We Live. Yes, hi. Um, I just wanted to offer the comment that uh, I've had uh, kids who've gone through uh, traditional public education in Connecticut, my two oldest boys, a son who we spent, you know, the better part of $40,000 a year sending to prep school. And then I have a daughter who is in one of the correct schools, one of the magnet schools in the Hartford area. And, you know, as everyone looks for a solution, I think we could really learn a lot from what's been done with Crex. Really, of all my kids, she's probably got the best education. She goes to a magnet school that's focused on global studies. She has the opportunity to travel the world. Um, she is a minority in this school. Um, uh, we're white, and uh, I think that's been a great experience for her, so being a more diverse school. Um, she learns a lot from that, I think, as well. So there's no question that we need to strive for a solution, but I think if we've modeled ourselves on what's going on in the Hartford area, both in terms of creating integrated schools and just the really superior quality of education that's happening at these threat schools, it would go a long way if we just spread that across the state. So I think there is a fairly obvious solution here that has been proven. Um, and all I can do is testify to the fact that I wouldn't have sent my daughter anywhere else. Thank you, Matt, for your call. Do you want to respond, Representative Curry? Yeah, Matt, and I think you make a, a great point. Uh, originally, when those magnet schools were first created um, decades ago, the idea was to kind of use them as incubators for uh, testing out new and innovative ways uh, to educate our children and then to take those ways and bring them back into our public school systems or traditional public school systems. Unfortunately, I think we've kind of gotten away from that and that uh, you know, crack and, and other regional uh, education services have kind of uh, become a, a beast in and of, of themselves. Um, and, you know, I would put my uh, district in East Hartford up against any of the crack schools any day uh, with regards to offerings and the teachings and uh, the students there. Uh, and uh, I think we'd be able to provide your kids with just a quality education as they were getting at crack. Joining us by phone now is Katie Roy, director and founder of Connecticut School Finance Project. Katie, you're on Where We Live. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on today. So you have a background working in high-need school districts in Connecticut. What's your reaction to last week's uh, ruling? Uh, certainly we're excited about last week's ruling. Uh, the judge's ruling in the case was broad and I think speaks to a number of the issues that we have seen, uh, particularly in the state's highest-need districts. Um, and I'm hopeful that this new court ruling is going to lead to some real substantive change in the state. Uh, we've been talking uh, throughout the show about uh, special education and how it's funded, uh, maybe some disparities in certain districts. Uh, what's uh, your take on how the state can reform that? Yeah, so we have been spending a lot of time thinking about special education and special education funding over the last year. 
um, after starting the Connecticut School Finance Project, I spent a good deal of time uh, going around the state talking with different stakeholders, so with teachers, with parents, with district leaders, uh, with city and town leaders and policymakers. And one of the concerns that we heard come up over and over again was uh, concerns about how the state is funding special education. Uh, so we decided to take on some research in the area to really <clears throat> begin to get a better understanding um, of how special education funding works in other places and what we might be able to do better here in Connecticut. So uh, among the research we did was a 50-state survey of how special education funding works in all 50 states, um, and from that we developed some key best practices. And then over the last nine months, uh, we have been working in partnership with UConn with some input from education practitioners uh, to develop sort of a new way of funding special education, which we have named the Special Education Predictable Cost Cooperative. Um, and really this new policy idea does three important things for special education funding. So first, it's designed to protect all students. Um, so it protects all students by ensuring that all districts have adequate resources available for special education. And this is really important not only for special education students, but also for general education students. So sometimes, for example, in Bridgeport Public Schools this year, when we see uh, unpredictable costs in special education, we see that districts need to tap into some of their general education resources in order to cover their special education costs. So basically, this system designs a cooperative that ensures that districts have enough funding to pay 100% of their special education cost needs every year, which protects, of course, both our special education students as well as our general education students. So you're talking about a weighted student funding system. Um, it, it is not actually a weighted student funding system. So a, a weighted student funding system is the type of funding system that I think we would want to use to distribu distribute our main formula aid, uh, something like the education cost-sharing grant. Um, this is a little bit of a different system for special education funding. Um, basically, it's a cooperative model um, that brings together resources and then ensures that each district is reimbursed 100% for their special education costs. So it works a little bit differently than the way that you might distribute main formula aid, um, which should generally be distributed based on uh, both the learning needs of students and then the ability of the city or town to pay their local education costs. I want to take a quick call now. Mary is calling from Simsbury. Mary, we just have a couple of minutes. What's your comment or question? Um, I just don't think that people realize that uh, special education was federally mandated, but it's not it is not federally funded. And coming from Simsbury, I also had a son who went to Classical Magnet, and I'm also from Finland, which totally segregate, segregates their special needs population from the general, typically learning population. And they have come here, Finnish officials have come here to observe Simsbury, how they integrate. And most people don't realize that Simsbury is probably one of the top high schools in the country. We have over 540 special needs students. We have several that are medically fragile whose cost is somewhere near the six figures. And our town property taxes really pay for that. The $300,000, which is sort of a very small amount uh, that Simsbury got last year in this uh, cost sharing that the judge sort of sneered at these so-called wealthy towns that is, you know, should not be going to Simsbury. Well, that doesn't cover quite a lot of the needs of our special education community. Obviously, people have moved into this town because of they know the reputation that Simsbury has to be able to integrate these students. But people forget in 2000 when special education was mandated that every child receives an education. It was never 
federally funded. And this is a huge issue. All right, Mayor, we're almost out of time. I do appreciate your comment. Just wanted to go back to Representative Curry. Um, again, can we talk about what this really means for the wealthier districts? And do they foresee less state aid coming to them? Um, I can see why they are concerned about that. Um, but I, I think when, you know, as she mentioned, Simsbury, uh, the judge kind of sneered at that $300,000. And I think one of the articles in the paper recently indicated that uh, if they didn't get that, it would mean a $28 increase a year to their taxpayer in Simsbury. Now, I don't mean to sound trite. I don't mean to uh, or anything. But, you know, $28 a year is almost nothing especially in a community such as Simsbury, to help cover the costs of another community who might be right next door who has just as much, if not more, need but just doesn't have the finances uh, at their disposal that Simsbury may have. Uh, you, you know, you think about it as, you know, we continue to perpetuate poverty. When you stay in a hotel, you know, you've got the money to stay in that hotel, and then you think about leaving, do I leave that $1, $2, tip for the, for the, uh, for the maid service? Well, guess what? That maid service could probably use that $20 bill in your pocket. So I, I think we need to start thinking differently about um, the, our communities. And, and, you know, somebody mentioned earlier the R word, regionalism. Um, you know, as a former Board of Ed chair and from East Hartford, you know, I was very territorial at that point. But seeing things from a st- uh, state lens, it's the direction we have to go. And, and you know, it, in those regions, you should have a mix of all communities so that everyone can understand, again, t- to my earlier point, this is about all our kids, not just your kids. I want to thank uh, East Hartford State Representative Jeff Curry. Again, the session begins in January. So are we are we going to see lawmakers make a plan? That's the hope. <laughs> I mean, let's get to work. Let's get it done. And then just a reminder, the elections in November, I think all seats are up. So the voters, uh, they'll, uh, they'll let you know what, what kind of work they want to see you do. So I want to, again, thank you for your time, Representative Curry. Thank also, you. WNPR's education reporter, David DeRoche, a complicated discussion. Hopefully we're able to explain what this ruling means uh, to the state. David. Thanks for having us on, Lucy. Our show is produced by Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Thank you for your calls and your emails, your tweets, and your Facebook messages. You can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.